Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to see some of you guys. Uh, again, it's been a little while since I've been able to come over here to Champaign. I've been over at our Urbana location, and so it is good to be with you today. Things are going well over in Urbana, and I always encourage people, if you're kind of just curious about what it's like over there, to just go check it out for a Sunday. I'm not asking you to attend there every week, but you can certainly uh, go over there and just see what our Urbana location is all about. But it is, it is good to be here and to see you all. Reputation is a concept that we're all familiar with, right? Uh, that, that different businesses around town have certain reputations. Restaurants certainly have uh, good reputations or maybe bad reputations. And we know that, uh, that a reputation kind of around town, how you're known in a community, can certainly make you or break you. But people can have, have reputations too. This is especially true in a high school context. Perhaps, perhaps you can remember uh, what your high school context was. Perhaps you can remember what your reputation was in high school. Maybe you were the athlete or, or, the, or the jock or the nerd or maybe even the outcast or whatever it is. You guys can fill in the blank based on your experiences. But reputations, they're, they're earned over time and they're based on experiences that people have with you. But, but reputations can sometimes outlast their truth. Let me give you an example of that. If you guys are from around here or maybe close by, you might be familiar with the Beef House. You know that restaurant that kind of on the other side of the state border greeting you to the promised land of Indiana? I'm from Indiana, so I'm a little bit biased. <laughs> my wife gets really annoyed because every time we go to Indiana, I stick my hand in front of the car so I can say I was in Indiana before her. Um, but anyways, it doesn't matter. Anyways, I can remember growing up going to the Beef House, and it was known as the best restaurant in Indiana. And it was. I mean, it, it, there was certainly a time that it lived up to that reputation, just this incredible meal. My, my grandfather would take us there for these special events or these big moments, and it was just awesome. But in my opinion, that reputation has outlasted the truth. I would say that if you were to go to the Beef House today, you would still get a good meal. The rolls are incredible. But the best in Indiana, I think those, those days might be behind them. And this idea that reputations can outlast truth goes beyond just restaurants, and perhaps it's true for you too. I know, I know certainly for me, I am much different now than the person I was in high school. But we've been studying the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and today is the church in Sardis. Now Sardis, they had a certain reputation for their church. Because churches aren't exempt from reputations either. That even today, we see churches all over the world, all over the country have certain reputations. Sometimes they're good, and sometimes they're bad. We know that churches aren't perfect, and we know that sometimes leaders within the church, they're not, they're not exemplifying Christ-likeness. Maybe they're destructive or sinful. But for us today, what I want to ask is this. What would the reputation of First Christian Church be? Now, in the community, we're known as what? The church with the playground, right? That's what, that's what people know us by. They're like, oh, yeah, we've been out there. We, you know, we took our grandkids out there. We took our kids out there during the summer or the winter time, right? So we're, that's what we're known for in the community. But what else? Beyond the playground, what would the reputation of this church be? And furthermore, what would your reputation be in your faith? So I want to remind us all about the context for this series. The book of Revelation was written by this guy named John on the island of Patmos. And he received this vision from the Holy Spirit. And John, he started to write down what he saw. And so part of this vision is he sees, he sees Jesus addressing seven different churches in Asia Minor and giving them a bit of a review. He's affirming what they've done well and correcting where needed. 
And so we, ha- we have to keep in mind that just because this was a vision did not take away from the reality of what is happening, that these were real churches in real cities receiving real correction. But what we've been talking about and what we've been seeing is, is Satan having certain attacks on their worship, trying to distort or divert or destroy their worship. And so let's take a look at the city of Sardis before we dive into our text. I do I invite you to open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Uh, there are sermon notes in the back. You guys can grab those in, um, as you walked in, or you can pull those up on your app as well. But one of the most popular things that you'll see when you study about the city of Sardis is where it was and how it was placed made it incredibly easy to defend. We've got this picture I want to show for you guys of where the city used to be. Um, and so you, you'll be able to see in this picture um, that there were, there were um, certain cliffs and there were you know, all kinds of different things, these natural defenses in addition to the city walls that used to be here. So we see these sharp cliffs, these, these thick forests that made it incredibly difficult for armies to be able to attack. In fact, there are only two accounts in history where the fortress was ever actually captured. The story that's told about it is that one of these attacks is about a Sardinian soldier who dropped his helmet over the wall. And so what he did is he, this, this guy that was defending the city, he went outside the wall to fetch his helmet. But what he didn't know is that there was a Persian soldier observing him. And so as this guy is fetching his helmet, he revealed this, this hidden path kind of through the cliffs. And so the Persian soldier, he, he watched this guy and knew where that path was. He went back and got his fellow Persians, and then they marched on the city by way of the hidden path. But by the time they got to the city gate, they found it completely unguarded. You see, the, what, they, what they would talk about is that um, they say that soldiers were so, so confident in the natural defenses of the city that they felt like keeping watch was not necessary. And so what we see that is true about the city is going to be somewhat true about the church in Sardis as well. That the church in Sardis was a dead church because of sinful compromise. And so similar to the city, there was an overconfidence about what was that ultimately led to their downfall. So I want to read this morning Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. It says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief And you will not know at what time I will come to you. So we see this reference to the seven spirits and the seven stars. Now, so far in Revelation, we've we've seen seven lampstands. We've seen seven cities, seven churches, seven letters. And now these seven spirits and the seven stars. You might be familiar with the fact that seven is a very special number in the Bible. That there were a lot of Old Testament references to seven. That every every seven years, debts were forgiven. I really wish that was still true. Um, We see seven days in creation. We see seven throughout Scripture. And the seven spirits and seven stars as a representation of God's spirit to the seven churches being addressed. So what Jesus is essentially saying here is that I have and am the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And I'm speaking to Sardis, but also to all of the churches. And so when Jesus speaks, it is with this authority. 
Now, there's a theme that we see throughout Scripture, that as we follow Jesus, it's often defined in life and death terms. That sin that leads to death that we are all guilty of. But in, 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 on the opposite side of that is Jesus, that through his life, through his death and resurrection, he gives us new life. And so we have sin that leads to death, and we have Jesus that gives us new life. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says this. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. And so Jesus looks at the church in Sardis and he says, I know your deeds. You have this reputation of being alive, but you are dead. But what's interesting here is Jesus isn't, Jesus isn't mincing his words, right? Jesus isn't pulling back his punches. This is like top of the line playground smack talk, right? This is like talk to the hand because the faces don't want to hear it, right? Or the, the, the one I heard all the time is girls go to Mars to get candy bars, but boys go to Jupiter to get more stupider, right? <laughs> or the infamous like the, you're the L7 weenie, right? Like you, you get all these like playground smack talks, right? But Jesus, that's, Jesus is saying some pretty strong words here. Right, those are like the strongest words in my head. I mean, at least to my six-year-old they are. But Jesus is not mincing his words. He's not pulling his punches. He's, he's telling this church that you are dead. Because the other churches that we've studied, they've, they've had corrections. They've had issues going on. But this is the only time where Jesus comes out and says that you are dead. In other words, the reputation is not living up to the hype. It has outlasted the truth. That yeah, you look alive, you have a reputation of being alive, that, that meetings are happening and, and things are going on and uh, the wheels are moving, daily programs, and programs are going on, but you are not alive. You're dead in the water. Your loyalty and service to Christ, they're behind you. They're in the past, now you are nothing. And Jesus knows this to be true because he sees people for exactly who they are. So something that we need to understand this morning is this, that reputation is no guarantee of future obedience, that who you were doesn't mean that that's who you are going to be. This is why we have to keep on guard, we have to maintain our faith, that we have to be watchful and pay attention, or as verse 2 says, to wake up. So then it begs the question, man, what does it mean to be spiritually alive? Now, you might call it a, a vibrant faith or, or being on fire or in step with the Spirit, but whatever, whatever it is, what it really boils down to is this, that if you want to be spiritually alive, be obedient to God. Verse 2 talks about these unfinished deeds, meaning that you started a lot of good things, right? Back in, back in the day, when you, were, when you were alive in your faith, you started all of this stuff, but now all of a sudden, it's incomplete, now that you find yourself dead, you have these unfinished deeds. And so what the church in Sardis had was rather than, rather than these deeds that they're marching towards completion, they just, they just kind of had this list of stuff to do. Now maybe, maybe it was a good list, maybe it was some great goals or some good intentions, but nonetheless, it's just a list that's maintaining the reputation for being alive. This list could have been these, these spiritual shoulds or maybe these, these Christian coulds or these really great Bible-based oughtas, but whatever it is, it was just maintaining the reputation. But the church in Sardis mirrors what I believe is an issue for most American churches. It's our unfinished deeds. It's a lot of used-tos in our faith. Because most often, 
I think that if we went around this room and I kind of talked to each of you, most of us, we know the right thing to do, but for whatever reason, we just, we just don't do it. Most often, we, we don't have a knowledge problem, we have an obedience problem. And church, this is, this is so true for me too, that there are so many times where, where I know what I should do, or I know, what, I know what scripture is telling me to do, or I know what the spirit is prompting me towards, but man, that knowledge doesn't always equal action. In fact, what I find myself doing so often is I, I find myself just slipping back into passivity. I ignore it. I brush it off. I don't do it and I just move on. Because it's one thing to know what to do. It's another thing to do what you know you should. And so perhaps you feel like Sardis. Perhaps even today you can point to all the used to's in your faith or all the things that the church used to do. And so let me just remind you if, you, if you find yourself saying or thinking that phrase of used to, used to, used to, let that be the alarm to kind of go off in your head. Let that be a warning sign in your faith. If you catch yourself, well, I used to go to church every week, or I used to be in a group, or I used to serve, or I used to tithe, or I used to desire to share my faith, or fill in the blank on whatever it is. I think you and I have all been there at some point in time that, oh, well, I used to do that, or, well, we as a church, we used to to do that. Man, if we start falling into that mindset, let that be an alarm to go off on our head to wake up, to guard ourselves against that thinking. Because otherwise we'll find ourselves having a reputation of being alive, but we're not. The point here is clear. Don't get used to being a used to Christian. Now to clarify, there are some good used to's in your faith. You might be able to say like, well, I used to struggle with that or I used to always give it to that temptation, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. And so call it whatever you want. You can call it used to, you can call it coasting or being complacent or a lack of desire or, well, this is the stage of life that I'm in right now. But Jesus is saying to wake up, to pay attention and to repent of all of that. But this is where the, the beauty and the graciousness of Jesus starts to shine through. Because even to the dead church in Sardis, Jesus reminds them of a couple of things. The first one is to strengthen what remains. That there is still good work that you can do. That there is time to make a change and to get back. And there's, there's an opportunity to still do what, what is before you, to share the good news. And the second is to remember what you have heard and received. It's a reference to the gospel. To remember the whole story. To remember all the promises fulfilled in Jesus. All the covenants that came to completion through Jesus. To remember how Jesus is the perfect sacrifice atoning for all of our sins. To remember how faith in that sacrifice is how we receive eternal life. It's how we receive forgiveness for our sins. It's how we receive grace and salvation. But yet, even in this encouragement to strengthen what remains and to remember, it still comes with a warning that if you don't wake up, if you don't remember, I am coming like a thief. Now, thief, thief is a common word in Scripture. We see it all the time, right? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24 that he's coming like a thief in the night, that Jesus was crucified next to thieves, that Judas was a thief, that we see in the Old Testament there were a couple of sons of an Old Testament priest who stole from the temple. We see, we see thieves throughout Scripture. 
Now, while preparing for the sermon, Eric shared with me uh, this story about, about this professional burglarer. I guess all the talk about thievery kind of got him into this deep dive of YouTube, and he came across this story. But here's what it says. Um, there was this 20-year-old from, the t- uh, from Texas by the last name of Durden. He talks about what, it would, what he would look for when canvassing for a house to rob. Basically, what he would do is he would, he would look for a house that has means, right? Um, maybe you're in a good neighborhood or uh, maybe, you, you know, you're in a, just a good part of town and so forth, but, but a house that has means that it's gotten lazy. So the prime example he gave is, well, maybe, maybe they always have a well-manicured lawn and then all of a sudden it's not so well taken care of. That's a good indicator that they might be out of town. Right? Or maybe your trash cans have been outside for a few days. Right? Whatever these different indicators are. But his number one piece of advice to people with trying to prevent break-ins is this. Try to think like someone trying to rob you and adjust your course accordingly. So I think a fair question to ask out of this is this. What would you do today if you knew Jesus was returning tomorrow? How would that knowledge change what you do? Because a failure to keep watch over our faith or a failure to, to kind of slip into that passivity, a failure to let our reputation outlast the truth, a failure to do all of that is an open invitation for disarray to start to creep in. And so it begs the question, what happens if we don't keep watch? Let's keep reading in Revelation chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. It says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. And I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we saw in Pergamum, as we saw in Thyatira, and now in Sardis, they're all recorded to having a faithful remnant a few good apples in with the rest of the bunch. But then we see this odd kind of play on words about these soiled clothes. Now, the customs of the time said that you could not go worship any of the pagan gods with dirty clothes. And so Jesus is playing on this idea by instilling that a failure to be on watch in your faith means that you have soiled your clothes. But walking with Christ means that you will receive white robes. And so this is where we see the, the whole concept for the book of life kind of pops up here that, that only those with, rot, with white robes that Jesus gives have their name written down in the book of life. And walking close with Christ means that we are clothed in Christ. What Jesus is saying is that you there in the white robes, come and walk with me. Walk closely. That this is an intimate promise that there's a reward to closeness with Christ. As James 4 says, it's, it's as we draw near to God, he will come near to us. There's a beauty in proximity to Jesus. So let me ask you guys a question that I've been very, very convicted of this week. I want you to write this down somewhere. Do I believe closeness to Christ is a reward? Do I believe that closeness to Christ is a reward? Like if I, if I told you, hey, you need to stay, uh, stay on watching your faith. If you, you need to, to guard yourselves and to walk closely with Jesus. And if you, if you do that, then you will receive blank. 
right? What would be the reward to get you to, to, to have that type of obedience? What would be the reward to get you there? If I, if, I, if I said, okay, if you walk with Jesus, then your reward is that, that nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. Would that be enough to, to get you to be obedient? Or if I said, you know what, um, you know, if, you, if you walk closely with Jesus, if you, if you stay on guard in your faith, then you will never have an overdue bill and you will always have money in the bank. Would that be enough reward to get you to be obedient? Now, I get it. Those rewards would be pretty awesome because they, they are rewards. I'm not saying those, that would not be rewarding. That would actually be pretty, pretty phenomenal. But is that how we view Jesus? Is Jesus himself a reward? Because I don't know what reward you might want. But is Jesus a reward to you? Is being able to walk closely with him, hearing his voice, trusting his spirit... Is he enough for you to continue to walk in your faith, continue to be on guard, and continue to be obedient? This is where we kind of, we see this, this weird mindset that people find themselves in. Sometimes it's, it's called the minimal mindset Christian. It's the person who asks something like, well, what's the least I have to do to be saved? What's the minimum amount to still go to heaven? That question and line of thinking just paints the picture that sometimes we want to hold on to the world as closely as we can without going to hell, right? That that's the mindset. It's like, well, what's the minimum I can do to kind of be accepted by Jesus, but I really want to hold on to all this stuff over here. Man, what a dangerous mindset that it can become. That ultimately, those types of people, were, we're, not, we're not willing to surrender much. We're not really trying to be obedient. We want the reputation without having to live up to it. Because for some people, being close with Christ and the obedience that it requires feels more like a punishment than a reward. And to that, Jesus is saying to wake up, to be on guard. As we prepare our hearts to continue to worship this morning, I want to read for us uh, from 1 John chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. It says, This is the message we have heard from him. And to declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out of truth. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us us all from sin. If I can just say, guys, this is, this is what we're after as a church. This is what we're chasing. This closeness with Jesus. To trust, to have faith, and to believe that, that being able to walk with him is the truest and greatest and best reward in this life as a disciple. And man, that as, as, we, as we walk with him and as we become more obediently and as we all follow Jesus, the more alive we will become as individuals and as a church. And man, the more alive we are as a church, the most attractive we will become and God will be able to do great things. Guys, we're not, we're not after a certain attendance number. We're not after a certain budget number. We're not after, um, we're not trying to become this, this, this big, massive church with number of locations. And we're not after a certain baptism number. What we're truly after is closeness with Christ. 
that yes, our vision is to see 5,000 next steps over the next five years, and we are right on track with all of that. But it's not for the number. But man, what we are trying to do is we are trying as best we can to measure a closeness number. That in those numbers, what we're trying to measure are people taking their next steps and continuing to follow Jesus. One after another, believing that being close to Jesus is everything and then some. So I want to close with a couple of questions. What if instead of asking, you know what, what's the minimum? What's the least I can do? Our minds went to that chorus of one of the songs that we sing that, man, Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. And what if, instead of how low, how low can the bar be, we say, how close can I walk with Christ? What can I do to show that Jesus is my Lord and Savior? We're going to continue to worship this morning. We're going to continue to sing songs and praise God and exalt his name. But I would ask you this, how much do we value being close to Christ? I think we would all nod and say, or nod our heads and be like, well, of course, Garen, yes, of course I value being close to Christ. I mean, none of us would say, nah, you know what, I'd rather, I'd just rather be far from Jesus. But what do our actions show? Are we obedient? Is he a reward enough to prompt that obedience? And guys, I'm not, I'm not up here saying I've got this figured out because I don't. <laughs> this is hard and I get it. Because man, it is so easy, so easy to slip into that passivity. It's so easy to go, ah, that's really uncomfortable. I don't really, I don't really want to do that. Man, may we be found alive in Jesus. And it is through his sacrifice that it's only possible. That if you want life, if you want eternal life, if you want salvation, and it only comes through faith in Jesus. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except through him. So yeah, we're, uh, would you guys go ahead and stand? We're going to continue to sing, continue to worship, and just let me encourage you with this. These words up on the screen, they're not there for us to just kind of read, but rather that they're there so that collectively as the church of Christ, we can exalt his name, that we can respond to his goodness, respond to his love, and that we can shout, we can sing, and we can lift our hands, and we can clap, and we can celebrate the fact that we can have eternal life, that we get to receive the forgiveness of our sins all through the sacrifice of Jesus. And so would you guys continue to worship this morning?